Hello and welcome to our Bible teaching program, Search for Truth. If you've been following the last five weeks, they've been about the life and character of Joseph, latterly with focus on family relationships. Today, Brian begins part two of this Vital Home Truths series, where for the next five weeks, he takes a wider view of family and he applies Bible verses and principles to family relationships. And today, Brian's called his talk, The Training Ground. So, let's hear from Brian now. Thanks, John. Having been involved recently in the establishing of a new church on foreign soil, I've been reading again Paul's letters to young or newly planted churches with heightened interest. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul writes to the Thessalonian church, reminding them of how, shortly after the church had been set up, he'd been torn away from them by hostile circumstances. Leaving them at that time had been the last thing he wanted to do, and he wrote to tell them of the great suspense he'd undergone, wondering how they were faring in his absence. When he could bear it no longer, it was then, he explained, that he'd sent Timothy to them to encourage them. Paul's great fear was that for some reason they might not be continuing in the Christian pathway. Now that Timothy had returned, bringing with him a favourable report of their progress, Paul was overjoyed. The relief in his letter to them can almost be felt. Listen to it in chapter 3, verse 8, as he says, For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. He was so grateful, wasn't he? And he goes on to reveal that day and night he'd been praying for them. And in fact, at that very moment of writing, he burst into prayer for them, asking God that their love which was already a reality, might keep on growing. But what really struck me in thinking over Paul's love for his spiritual children, that's those who formed this infant church in Thessalonica, what really came home to me was this pastoral love the apostle was expressing was really parental love. Think of the way he'd really missed them, his unbearable suspense of not knowing about their welfare, the relief of receiving reassuring news at last, and his constant prayerfulness for them, these all bear the marks of a devoted parent's love and care for his or her children. A true parent just wants to be there for their family, has a real protective care for them, is overjoyed to see evidence of progress and development, and is committed to lifelong prayer for them. I'd like this to be the background and our framework for our short treatment of family matters. It's true beyond a shadow of a doubt that our family life matters very much to God. He is the God from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. That's how the same apostle addressed God in prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 15. Bowing his knees, he said, to the God from whom every family is named. It's a tremendous example, especially as we come to God in our family prayers, isn't it? What a perspective and comfort to be assured that our prayer burdens for family members originate with the one who instituted the family unit at the time of creation and cares about each and every example of it. The pastoral care of the apostle was in itself a reflection of the love of God for his people. Through Isaiah, in the Old Testament, God says in chapter 1 verse 2, I have nourished and brought up children. He was referring then to his ancient people, the the Israelites. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. If you've known difficulties in the domestic sphere, if you've been deeply frustrated by the response of children, 
then in taking it to the Lord in prayer, you can be sure that he fully understands how it feels. It would be natural enough to suppose on the surface of it that this topic has no relevance for, say, a single person. But that's really not the case at all. Psalm 68, verses 5 and 6, tell us that God, who is the father of the fatherless, sets the solitary in families. It's God's desire that we come to know him and in doing so cultivate relationships with other believers on the Lord Jesus. We value the counsel of older, more mature disciples. And on the other side of the equation, we can nurture spiritually younger believers. Very soon, an adopted family materialises, especially if the Lord uses us to help bring others to the Saviour. Paul spoke of Timothy and others in Corinth as being his spiritual children because he had been instrumental in their coming to faith. Since we intend using Paul's care for the Thessalonian church as an example, in a real sense, this is the most direct application of the family lessons we'll be drawing with God's help. But you say, what about people who, sadly, haven't had very happy family experiences themselves? In fact, it's said that Martin Luther struggled to rejoice in the thought of God as his father because of his own family background. And I know of other people who've only responded with some measure of warmth to the idea of God as a father after much intensive counselling. One thing we need to try to appreciate is that our idea of God shouldn't be conditioned by our own imperfect experience of relationships. It's really meant to be the other way around. That is, our appreciation of God as a father ought to be reflected in our own parenting. Bearing in mind the idea of modelling our paternal and parental skills on God and his dealings with us, as they're revealed to us in the Bible, let's pick up the first point from Paul's letter to the Thessalonian church. It's found in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. There we read, We proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. The word nurse here comes from an idea meaning to nourish, to rear up, to train up children. Notice again how the pastoral application is drawn from family life. Here's a mother's nurturing and training of her children. Perhaps this is something that's not as valued as it once was in our society. Not that we wish in any way to speak against mothers who, because of pressure of circumstances, have to entrust part of the training and rearing of their children to others, possibly professionals. Whether it's full-time or whether it has to be part-time, the reality is that child-rearing is a career in itself. Proverbs 22 and verse 6 is a great verse in the Bible on the training of children within a family. It says, train up a child in the way he should go, or train up a child according to his way. The second translation, found in the margin of the New American Standard Bible, for example, acknowledges that each child is different. That's something that really came home to me after the birth of our second child. Even from a few months, Anna bore the stamp of her own personality, quite different from Michael, her older brother, in her sleep patterns, eating habits, and in the way she reacted to people. In training our children, it's important to be sensitive to their different, God-given characteristics. When it says, train up a child according to his way, the word way literally means something trodden. 
Elsewhere in the Bible, it crops up in different connections, as in the effect of someone treading on a bow in order to bend it to shape. That's quite enlightening, as we link it back to our child-rearing verse. It relates to how each child's personality is shaped differently. We wouldn't necessarily expect to bring up all our children in exactly the same way. For example, some may respond better to encouragements than warnings, or vice versa. The second point on the training of children that flows directly from an understanding of the same Bible verse in Proverbs 22 verse 6 has to do with the fact that the word train there, as in train up a child, comes from a word referring to the roof of the mouth and was seemingly used to describe the action of a midwife dipping her fingers into the juice of crushed dates and then massaging a child's gums and palate. The tangy taste stimulated the child to suck. We can at least borrow that plausible and colourful background as illustrating that the parents, not exclusively the mother by any means, in training their children must strive to cultivate a thirst in their child for wholesome things. Think of the words of Philippians 4 and verse 8. Whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence... And if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. If we as parents don't demonstrate such superb family values, but say, watch any old trash on the television, then it's not very likely our children will acquire a taste for those praiseworthy things of Philippians 4. Above all, parents are to seek to stimulate a real thirst for God and his truth. Many Christian parents have their own stories of their very young children sitting with their little kiddies' Bible, like the eight-year-old found sitting in the living room reading her little devotional. What are you doing? she was asked by someone. I'm pretending to be mummy, came the reply. Mothers especially have a tremendous responsibility and privilege in moulding the generation to come, particularly at an early age when the clay, so to speak, is still wet and impressionable. What's the saying? Is it, give me a child until he's seven and I'll show you the man? That could be a very loose paraphrase of our Bible text from Proverbs. There was a former president of the United States, I believe, who allegedly passed folks in the street without so much as a second glance. But on encountering a child, he would stop and doff his hat because, he explained, who knows what that child will become? It's an awesome thought, isn't it? Parents, mothers, you are raising tomorrow's leaders. What an impact on history unassuming mothers like Susanna Wesley have had. Who would dare to say theirs was a wasted life? While we're thinking of young family members being impressionable, it's worth noting that in the Bible's inspired advice to parents in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 7, it stresses the need for parents impressing or teaching diligently God's commands to their children. Literally, it might have been translated, you shall intensely sharpen your children, which serves to show that the type of teaching God has in mind is active, not passive. Certainly, the transfer of truth from one generation to the next is not automatic, but requires time and effort, time and effort that has to be supplied by parents.
I hope you're enjoying this series of talks. And uh, by the way, did you know there's a free book which accompanies this series? It can be yours for the asking if you write in by post or email. It's a digital ebook unless you uh, request a hard copy. Um, but if you want one, just ask for Vital Home Truths. And you can do it, as I say, by email or by post. And here's our postal address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. Now, did you know by looking up churchesofgod.info forward slash media, you'll find our church's main website and you can download some programmes and the accompanying transcripts, and then there's other helpful material you can access as well. So, we've really enjoyed the pleasure of your company today. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to your company again next week, if you're able to join us. But until then, it's cheerio and very best wishes from our Bible teacher Brian, our producer David, our singers, and me, John. So, see you soon, and in the meantime, may God richly bless you.